throughout our uh, study in the book of Romans, there's been uh, one recurring truth that um, has uh, grabbed me and won't let me go. And it's, it's pretty much changed my life. It certainly has changed the way I view the circumstances of my life on a daily basis. And uh, for some of you, it may not seem that profound, but for me, it's something that uh, has uh, definitely grabbed a hold of me. Like I said, and it just won't let me go. And that truth is simply this, that uh, God is God and I am not. And, uh, you know, when you, when you gra- grab a hold of that and you understand that and you allow that truth to really sink into your life, it'll change your life for the better. That God is God and I am not. God is God and you are not. Uh, he's God. And it's really important that we recognize that and understand that. I came across a couple of stories that I think will help illustrate what I'm trying to say. The first one is uh, one day little Timmy was talking to God and he said, What's a thousand years like to you, God? And God answered, like a second. Timmy said, well, God, then what's a million dollars to you like? And God said, like a penny. Now, Timmy thought for a second and he said, God, can I borrow a penny from you? To which God responded, sure, Timmy, in a second. (laughs) You know, it just kind of keeps you thinking. Or perhaps the one of the couple who had been married for 25 years, they were celebrating their 60th birthdays, which fell on the same day. Now, during the celebration, God appeared and said that because they had been such a loving couple for 25 years, that he would give them one wish. The wife wanted to travel around the world, and God said, no problem, and poof, a cruise ship tickets and airplane tickets appeared, and God said, travel to your heart's delight. Well, it was the husband's turn, and he paused for a second. He said rather slyly and and, um, shyly, he said, uh, well, I, I hate to say this, and I don't mean any offense by it says, but I've always wanted a woman about 30 years younger than me. God smiled with understanding and said, you know what, I can arrange that. He said, so be it. And poof, he was 90 years old. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, what's the point here? I guess God's a little sharper than us. You know, no matter whether you're young or whether you're old, God is smarter than you, and he's certainly smarter than me, and uh, he's God and we're not. And that's why when we come to the difficult questions in life, he's the place, he's the one that we should turn to uh, for whatever answers we're looking for. You know, in our last meeting together, uh, we discovered in Romans chapter 7 that the Apostle Paul was just like you and me in his daily struggles with trying to do right before God in a fallen world and with a, a corrupt nature. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 7 because the profound question that was raised at that particular time, he basically said this, why is it that I do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I want to do, those things I don't do? You know, the struggle that we all go through. In other words, he found himself exhausted from the ongoing battle between a new heart and a new nature that was alive in Christ, was dead to sin, yet that desire to please God and live to serve him and at the same time, an old corrupt sin nature that basically wanted him to continue to live in the past, to, to, uh, to live to please himself and to not please God, and the struggle was on. And, he, and uh, you know, when you think about that, you know, who can't relate to that? You know, just think about it from the standpoint of who can't relate to the fact that, you know, on, out of one side of our mouth and at times in our life, we know that we are saved for the purpose of just not having fellowship with God alone or looking forward to heaven one day, which is a truth, but we're saved for the purpose of now serving Him, living for Him, living to please God and not ourselves. So we know that, we understand that, and there are times where we really want to do that. 
And there are other times where we shrink away from that and think, you know what, oh, just at this moment in time, I just want to please myself. Yeah, I know what I'm doing is wrong, and I understand that, and I'll pay the price, whatever that is, and we never think the consequence is going to be you know, greater than the temporary pleasure that we're enjoying. But you know, we, we wrestle with this, and we go through it, and there's a struggle that goes on. We want to do the right thing, and yet we fail miserably to do the right thing. What's interesting is I was thinking about last week, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, but, you know, we had the baptism at the beach, and what an exciting day that it was. For those who are there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But on the other hand, it's interesting to see, you know, the people who take a stand, they make a public commitment, public profession, yeah, Jesus Christ is my Savior, I've invited him into my heart, I know he's forgiven me, and publicly I want to proclaim this to the world, and that's what baptism's all about, an external proclamation of something God's done in our heart, Right? And then all of a sudden you go to pick up the pictures that you took at the beach that were developed and the people there are going, or you go to back to work or you go back somewhere, you know, the next day it's Monday, it's a new week, it's whatever. And the first thing somebody asks you is what? Hey, how was your weekend? What you do this weekend? And then the struggle already takes place. It's already there. What is the struggle? The struggle is, well, you know what? I want to say I got baptized yesterday. But then I'm thinking, well, they'll think I'm nuts. So I'm not sure what to say. I'm excited about it, but on the other hand, the first challenge that I have is, how was your weekend? You go, that was okay, how was yours? Said like, hey, let me tell you about my weekend. We went down, we had the pictures developed, right? And I went to Savon, because that's the kind of guy I am. I run errands for my wife. That's right, fellas. And, uh, and, uh, what? So anyway, I I go and and I pick up, and I've got all these pictures that are being developed. And the lady goes, so what? You have a baptism yesterday? <laughs> it's like, yeah. You know, it's just like, what was that? You know, it's just like that. But see, that's the world we live in. And we're challenged, we're challenged on a daily basis of whether we're going to stand firm or whether we're going to kind of cower away, whether we're going to have a spirit of timidity and fear or a spirit of power and might. So the struggle is there, and the struggle is such a struggle that the Apostle Paul said in verse 24 of chapter 7, if you got your Bible, I wasn't looking here. He says, uh, wretched man that I am, exhausted man that I am, from continuing to live in a world that is just a battlefield. Man, it is a spiritual battlefield. He says, I'm exhausted. And he says, who will set me free from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me from the struggle that I'm in and doing what's right before God or living to please myself and the constant struggle that each of us go through on a daily basis? That's the question. And from that question naturally arises this one. And that is this. Must we as believers spend our whole life on earth frustrated by ongoing defeats to indwelling sin? Must we spend our whole life on earth frustrated by defeats because of this indwelling sin. Remember, the Apostle Paul said that in him, nothing good, there was nothing good. In the flesh, nothing good resides, man. I mean, there is nothing good in him, in and of himself. And that is certainly true of us. There's nothing good in any one of us. As I mentioned last time, you know, I'm a mess and you're a mess. And that's just the way it is. So are we, are we resigned to the fact that we're going to live this continual struggle on a daily basis? Or is, is there no power that's provided by God to achieve victory? You know, think about it. How can we live the Christian life? If this is the battle that goes on on a regular basis, how can we live the Christian life? And you know what? The answer is found in chapter 8. And the answer is summarized in one word, and that's this. We find freedom. In Romans chapter 8, we will find freedom from the battle that we find ourselves in on a daily basis. 
O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? This body of sin, the struggle that I'm in. I'm tired of fighting it and I'm finding no victory. What is my problem and is there an answer? And in Romans chapter 8, the answer is given to us and that's what we're going to look at. Romans 8, starting with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it doesn't subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot live to please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. It says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What a great passage. And in fact, in a, on January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed Congress on the, on the, uh, on the uh, state of the war in Europe, and much of what he said has been forgotten. But at the close of the address, he said he looked forward to, quote, a world founded upon four essential freedoms, the freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Now, obviously, those words are, are still remembered, even though their ideals haven't been realized everywhere in the world. And when we look at this, I compare it to Romans chapter 8 in the standpoint that Romans 8 is the Christian's declaration of freedom. In this passage, we're going to learn of four spiritual freedoms. And what we're going to do is take a look at two of those this week and then two of them in the next following weeks. But the, the next couple of weeks, are we're going to find that there's a freedom uh, from fear uh, and there's also a freedom from separation, which is a question that every Christian has, and that's this. Is it possible to do something in our life that we fail God so miserably that we lose our salvation? And all of this is found in Romans chapter 8. Remember, words are important. Uh, they mean something. In chapter 6, the word sin was found 17 times. In chapter 7, the word law is found 18 times. And now in, the, in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times. So we've got to key in on the fact that God is trying to tell us that the key to living the Christian life or the key that opens the door to freedom from sin and living in, and living in victory is found in chapter 8 where we see the words, the Holy Spirit. 
And we're going to talk more about that. But he, in, in chapter 8, Paul describes the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, who is the source of divine power uh, for sanctification and the secret for spiritual victory and daily living. Chapter 8 of Romans is without question, in my mind, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, and I'll tell you why. Consider this for a moment. In the beginning of chapter 8, we, we, we read the words, There is no condemnation. We close the chapter with, There is no separation. And in between, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. No condemnation starts it, no separation ends it, and everything in between is all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. And man, I'll tell you what, that's an exciting outline when you stop and think about it. You know, up until this point in our study in the, in the book of Romans, we've learned that all mankind is guilty and condemned before God. Uh, the things that we do, that we fall short of God's standard, are indicative of the fact that what God says is true, that we're all born into the world guilty, we're all sinners, we're all separated from God, none of us are righteous, no, not one all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God we've all gone astray so as we're reading through the book of Romans God indicts all of mankind immediately and tries to convince us by the way we live our life that what he says is true of us and that would be no different than the symptoms that we have of an illness or a disease. It's a perfect illustration of the symptoms that we have if you ever go into a doctor and you say the first thing he'll say is what are your symptoms well, what's he trying to get to? If I can understand your symptoms, then I can back you into what the cause is. So God says to all of humanity, Here, what are your symptoms? And the symptoms are, you know what? That we lie, that we cheat, that we steal, that we commit sexual immorality, uh, that, we, that we get drunk and that we do drugs and, and that we, you know, we hate one another and we kill one another, we murder each other, we assault one another. And all you got to do is watch the news and, and, and the symptoms are all over. The root cause of the problem and what God tries to take by using the symptoms to say the symptoms are evident that there's a root problem. The root problem is debated throughout cultures on the face of the earth, but the bottom line, what God says is this, the root problem, Chuck, is that every human being comes into the world a sinner. That we're born into the world a sinner and we sin because we are sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin for the first time. We come in as sinners and as we sin, it's indicative of who we are. And so what God has done through the book of Romans is lay out a very convincing argument. You know what? We're all busted and we're all guilty and we're all condemned before God. And the wages of sin is death. That we are all paying a price. Physically we die. Spiritually we're dead. And as a result, at one point in time in the, in the future, if that condition doesn't change, we spend eternity separated from God. So he says, hey, you're in deep trouble, Chuck. And I say, well, God, what can I do about it? He says, you can't do anything about it. I said, now I'm even worse trouble because there's nothing I can do. He said, no, listen. I've done it for you. I've sent my son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die in your place. If you believe what I'm telling you, if you believe on me whom has sent him, speaking of Jesus, then you shall be saved and there is no guilt or condemnation any longer in your life. So we have a choice at that point. Do we believe what God says? The evidence is overwhelming. What he says is true about our condition. And it's no different than a doctor saying, hey, the only thing that you can do is trust me to, to exercise my abilities, so to speak, and I'll remove the tumor or I'll remove whatever it is that's causing the symptom in your life. You've got to trust me and come to me and I'll take care of you because you can't do anything. There's nobody in this room that could operate on themselves. And if you try to, you're a fool. And so what God says to humanity is you come to me because you can't do it. And if you come to me, I'll do it for you. You trust me. You believe me. You trust what I tell you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now what we learn is once we've entered into that new relationship with him, no longer are we guilty or condemned, but now we live 
to please God and to serve Him. And so this whole idea of sanctification is we become more and more like Jesus every day. But the problem is, how do we do that? How do we live that life that's pleasing to God? When we all know we struggle and fail on a regular basis, and it's very frustrating, and that we're in this exhaustive battle. That's what Romans 8 is all about. It's led us very logically. Now, let me tell you something, and that's why it's very important to study the Bible in context. Because you can see how God very rationally and logically has laid out his argument in a convincing manner to where every step of the way leads to the next step. And that's why the most confused people that I've ever found in my life that have asked me questions are people who take a verse or a passage out of context and they try to understand the meaning in light of what they just read. And they get very confused by that. Why? Because they haven't read it in context. They haven't allowed God to teach them all throughout the process to where we finally get to Romans 8. By the time we get to the end of the chapter, there's a person here who will say, hey, it's no wonder there's nothing that we could do to ever lose our salvation, that there's no separation for those who are in Christ. Because look at what God has told us all along here. And we're going to see a little bit more, and it's going to lay out the foundation again today. And so as we look at these freedoms, we're going to look at uh, two of the freedoms uh, that are laid out for us as far as uh, how we find victory uh, in this life as far as now that we've come to faith in Christ, now how do we live in victory? And the first thing that we find is that we have freedom from judgment. Freedom from judgment. And that's critical. Look at Romans chapter uh, 8 again. Freedom from judgment. <coughs> Excuse me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to just kind of let that soak in for a second. The words, no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't the most natural thing to do when we fail, when we sin, isn't the most natural thing to doubt this truth? The most natural thing for any of us to do when we fail, fail God and we sin, and we know as believers as we sin, we're doing it deliberately because we know the difference between right or wrong, and we choose to do that which is wrong. And when we choose to do that which was wrong and we fail God, the most natural question to arise in our mind is, you know what, am I now condemned by God? And the Bible says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And I want you to understand that the Apostle Paul, in spite of his failings in chapter 7, and I'm going to go out on the limb here and say, you know what, the Apostle Paul didn't always do what God wanted him to do. And that was the source of his struggle in chapter 7. He wasn't a perfect man. And neither are you, or neither am I. But the interesting thing is, if you turn back with me to Acts chapter 9, the thing that Paul continued to go back to and the thing that each of us need to go back to if we want to live in victory in this life is what we find in Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1, and we'll just kind of jump around a little bit. But I want to reinforce something here that's very important for all of us who beat ourselves to death when we fail God. And count on it, we will. And that is this. In chapter 9 of the book of Acts, verse 1, we read these words, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters from him in the, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's speaking of Christians, both men and women, I like that too, by the way, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
and the, and the original Christian movement uh, was called the way. And which way was it? It was the way that Jesus said. The only way that you can get to the Father was through him. So the only way that you could be right before God was to follow Jesus. He was the way. And so that's what they called Christians. They said they belonged to the way. And he says, um, both, he says, and if any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the Apostle Paul said, hey, I want to go out and I'm going to arrest every Christian that I can find. Women, children, uh, men, I don't care. And he, and he goes, I just want your permission to do it. And it came about as he journeyed, as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around them. He fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and it shall be told what you must do. Jump down to verse 17, and we read, Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there, uh, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He arose and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. And for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Saul had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. And his life was never the same after that moment. The Bible says if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. What was the evidence in Paul's life, or Saul's life, and now Paul, that he had an encounter with Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing he did was he recognized him, and we're going to see that in a second. Turn with me to, uh, to Acts chapter um, 21. And I want to show you how this all ties together. Because now in Acts 21, starting with verse 40... Paul is standing in Jerusalem giving a defense of what has happened in his life, trying to explain to people around him what was going on in his life. What had happened? This life-changing experience that was so evident to people around him, they were trying to figure out now what he was all about. And in Acts 21:40, after he had been given permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hands, and when there uh, was a great hush, he spoke to them in a Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. It says, And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicily, Sicily, he says, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all today. And I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. He goes, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring them, even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners, to be punished. And it came about that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. He remembered the time. He remembered the place. He remembered the circumstances. He remembered everything that had taken place up to that point in time and this encounter that he had so drastically changed his life that he was forever and all eternity changed before God. He says, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered and said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light to be sure, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do? 
And the Lord said to me, Arise and go unto Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear an utterance from his mouth. And you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and what you have heard. And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling upon his name. And as Paul, his life was changed because two things took place. It's true of every human being who will ever be changed with an encounter of Jesus, by encounter with Jesus Christ, and that's this. He recognized that he was a sinner before God, that what he was doing was wrong, that he was persecuting Christ and he persecuted those who follow him. He recognized that he was wrong. And the second thing he did was he responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. In fact, we see that very clearly. He called upon his name. And that has to do with his authority. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved but that of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2 that he was given a name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those who are on earth and under the earth and in heaven that he's Lord to the glory of God. His life was radically changed because he recognized he was a sinner before God. He responded with faith to the finished work of Christ, realizing that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved of the condemnation and guilt before God. And his life was never the same. And every time he doubted, when he failed God, and he did so as you and I do, every time he doubted, you know what he did? He went back to that day on that road to Damascus, about noontime, when he came into an encounter with Jesus Christ, and his life was forever changed. And every time that you and I, when we fail God, and we will, and when we doubt our salvation, and we will, and we doubt what God has to say, and we will do that because we're in a battle here that's taking place. And on the one side, we want to do what's right, and on the other side, we want to do what's wrong, and we're torn between two worlds. But you know what he says? There is now no condemnation. To whom? To those who are in Christ Jesus. Every time I doubt my relationship with the Lord, I go back to February 16th, 1978, and I say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me on that cross. My life has never been the same. Did I fail today? Yes, I did. And that's the only reason I got to go back to that date as a reminder that what you say about me is true versus what I feel about myself. You know, Paul went back to that day, continually praising God for what he did. And he was able to give an answer for the hope that was within him. And we must all be able to do the same thing. We must understand clearly what God has done in our life. And that's why we ask the question, do you recognize that you're a sinner? Have you responded with faith to the finished work of Christ? If you have, and notice right away too, that the first thing that he did after this took place was he was immediately baptized as a public exclamation for what God had done in his heart. He publicly declared himself a follower of Jesus Christ in spite of his culture that couldn't stand the fact that there were people that were following him. They were asking the question, what has happened to you who used to hate Christ and hate those who followed him? You put him in jail, you persecuted him, you stood in hearty approval when Stephen was murdered and executed, and now you're one of them. What has happened? I've come to recognize that I'm a sinner before God. And I've responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. And I'm not the same. Because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away and all things become new. He goes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Literally, the words no condemnation mean there is no punishment. God will never punish his people. There is no punishment 
The Bible says that you and I will never be held accountable for what we do before God as far as eternity is concerned. Are there consequences of living in sin? Absolutely. The wages of sin is death. We've already seen that. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to notice that the Bible does not say, go back to Romans chapter 8. There is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who never make a mistake. There is no condemnation for those who never sinned before God. I don't know if you've read your Bible, but you know what? I find a whole bunch of godly people messing up. I see Abraham lying about his wife. I see David, a man after God's own heart, committing adultery and murdering the husband of the woman that he had a sexual relationship with. I see Peter saying, I'll never deny you. How was your weekend? What in the world? I mean, have you ever stumbled with a question like that before? How was your weekend? It was great. I was baptized. What else you do? <laughs> you know, it's like, no one want to go there, right? But it's so funny because it's like, and Peter, I'll never deny you. Hey, weren't you with them? I don't even know them. Little girl. Yeah, no, no, you were with them. I don't even know them. Big sissy. I mean, think about it. I mean, and we, and we all go through that. And the struggle is that, you know, we need to recognize and understand what he's saying here. There is now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ. We will never be punished for sin. And there's three things that are true. Number one, he talks about the law and our relationship to the law in verse two. Notice, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. You know, we've been made free. We've already seen we're dead to sin. Uh, we've been delivered from it. You know, we're dead to the law. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. We're under Christ's authority in our life. And we can walk with him and follow him. You know, the law can't condemn us either. Notice that in verse 3. In verse three, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Look, sending his son. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Isn't that a wonderful thing? The Bible says that, we've, that Christ has already suffered the condemnation for you on the cross. Let me make it very, in, a very, in a very simple illustration. In our culture, we have a law of what's called double jeopardy. The law of double jeopardy. And the law of double jeopardy means that you cannot be held accountable for the same crime twice. So, for example, when people like O.J. Simpson were, were found, when he was found guilt, uh, innocent... Um, when he was found innocent, I, wasn't, I didn't mean anything by that. When he was found innocent, he could never be tried for the same crime again. That's the law of double jeopardy. It can no longer be held against him at any time ever in the future. Listen to this very carefully. What God is saying is this. That the law can no longer condemn us who are in Christ because Jesus Christ already paid the price for our sin. Listen, listen. Since he paid the price for our sin, those of us who believe, since he paid the price for our sin, you and I can never be held accountable for sin before God because he's already paid the price. You follow this? This is awesome. He paid the price. We can never be put on trial again for sin in our life because God said Jesus paid the price for all of us who believe. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's an impossibility. God will never hold sin against us again as far as eternal judgment is concerned. Jesus paid the price. 
When he died on the cross, he did what the law could not do. Weak as it was through the flesh, God did it. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Remember, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He did not come to condemn the world. Because John 3, 14 through 18 tells us, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. Why did Jesus Christ come to this earth? To seek and to save that which was lost, and that includes you and it includes me. He came to save us. Save us from what? The guilt and condemnation that comes with being a sinner. So when Jesus died in our place on the cross and we believed him, he took our place as our substitute. He was then, he took that sin upon him. He took that, 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 uh, that indictment upon him. He was crucified for our crime, which was being sinners. And the Bible says because he did that and the law of double jeopardy is in effect, God will never hold you and I who believe in Christ accountable for sin ever again. It's an impossibility. Wow. Isn't that good stuff? saw a movie last night about a couple of girls that were in um, Thailand. And uh, they got caught up with a guy who ended up uh, having them take the hit for smuggling drugs into Hong Kong. I don't know if any of you saw the movie, but I liked the message in the movie, and that was this. You know, better be careful who you hang around with. Don't be so naive. Uh, you know, just like the Bible says, be careful uh, where you stand, unless you too shall fall. Uh, you know what? Uh, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals, and on and on and on it goes. But bottom line was this, that they were both, they were both found guilty, and they both were given, I think, life sentences. And what was interesting, at the end of the movie, one of the, one of the gals stood before the judge and said, I am guilty. She didn't do anything. I want to be held, guilty. I want to be held accountable for her guilt. And I will serve her sentence for her as well. And I think that they, they, they got 30 years. So it was two 30-year sentences. And she said, I need to be held accountable for what she did. What she didn't do, I did. She knelt down before the judge, and the judge looked at her and said, okay, set her free, and you pay the sentence. Two 30-year sentences. Freed the gal, she went to prison. She paid the price. And I thought, what a beautiful illustration of the truth of the word of God, and that's this. Because God is just, someone must pay the price for the violation, which is sin. But because God is merciful, he has allowed Jesus Christ to pay the price for you and I, for those who believe. Now that gal, when she was set free, had a choice at that point of saying, no, I'll serve my own time, or thank you very much, and I'm out of here. Now is it any wonder to you that she didn't say, no, that's okay, I'll stay here for the next 30 years. They took the shackles off, and she said goodbye, and she was gone. And I think, you know what? Why do any of us, after Jesus has paid the price for our sins, why would any of us say, no, thank you, God, I'll just serve my own time? We're not talking about 30 years here. We're talking about eternity. That's the choice that God offers to all of humanity. You are a sinner and you're found guilty. Your sentence is an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Or the option is that you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you should. He will pay the penalty for you, but it's your choice of whether you want to believe on him or spend eternity in hell. I've got to believe that the heart of man is so wicked and deceitful and so foolish and so stupid and so proudful 
prideful that if somebody said to you, would you rather spend eternity in hell or be freed because of what Jesus did on the cross, that anyone would say, I think I'll just spend my eternity in hell. There is either a pride that's there that causes one to, to keep from repenting, or there is an ignorance of what hell is all about. Hell is not a place that people go to hang out with their friends. That is an ignorance of, of what the Bible teaches. Hell is a place of weeping and torment and gnashing of teeth and eternal judgment and separated from the very presence of God. It is a place of utter darkness and agony. It is a place that God never intended for any human being to go. It was created for Satan and demons and no human being. It is God's desire that none would perish but all have eternal life. But he doesn't force anybody. He offers the choice. Do you want to go to hell for eternity or will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? That's the choice. You see, the problem is, is that in verse 4, the law can't control us. It can't control us. And I say that from the standpoint that as the believer, as we live a righteous life, it says in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see that the requirement of the law was that a price had to be paid. And the price was paid by Jesus. That's justice. Mercy was that God allowed Jesus to take our place for whoever would believe in him. What a wonderful thing that is. The free gift of God. It says, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's the key to living a Christian life. Once a person has come to faith in Christ and living a life that's pleasing to God, listen very carefully. The key to living the Christian life is found in Philippians 2.13. says, for it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God who works in you. Read Philippians chapter 3 when you get a chance. Why? Because, you know why Paul was so exhausted? Because he came from a background where he had to work his way to please God. Philippians chapter 3, a beautiful passage. In fact, flip through it real quick for a second because I want to show you the summation of all of it. His conclusion is one that we need to come to, and that's this. He was bragging about how in the past he used to do things that he thought would be pleasing to God. You know, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, I studied the law. I applied the law. I lived out the law. I did good things. I did what God said I was supposed to do. And in our culture, it would be, well, I used to, I, you know, I went to church. I was baptized as a baby. I was confirmed. I, was, I, I, I underwent some other ordinance of some church. You know, I did everything I was supposed to. I even read my, read my Bible every other day. I read through the Bible in a year. I give 10% or, or whatever it is. And I, I did all this stuff. See, we're so used to trying to do things to please God that when we become when we become believers come to faith in Christ, then all of a sudden we think that we need to keep doing things to please God afterwards, because that's our MO, that's how we always done things. And so, and, and what Paul says is this in Philippians 3, he says, but you know what, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost. He thought all those things were what was making him pleasing in the sight of God, and he says, you know what, what I found out is I count them all as rubbish, or I count them all as lost, I just throw them all away, because that's not God's program. God has a different program. And his program is, I count it all rubbish for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost or rubbish in view of the, listen, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him. First of all, foremost, we have to come to know Christ. Once we come to know Him, then we must know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed in His death. And he says, I forget what lies behind. I press on to what lies ahead of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? 
He's saying that, you know what? I'm not working my way to heaven anymore because that's an impossibility. I put my faith and trust in Christ and the only reason I'm going to be there is because of what Jesus did in my place. I'm not working my way to become like Jesus because I can't do that either. I'll fail miserably. And that's the battle that he was in, trying to be more like Jesus in his own power and his own strength. And he goes, I can't do it. Then the question is, well, how can you do it? That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. That's how. That I can do all things. Who? Through Christ who strengthens me. I can't live the Christian life. You can't live the Christian life. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. We are justified by God and we are sanctified by God. What we've got to do is let go, as the bumper sticker says, and let God live through us. Stop trying to do it on your own. You can't. I can't. None of us can. And Paul found out, man, you know what? No wonder I'm so miserable because I'm trying to please God in my own strength and my own ability. And I don't have any ability. He goes, the freedom from judgment, freedom up from trying to live the Christian life. Man, this is good stuff. The word is found in through. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, we look at that and I can know him and the power of his resurrection. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but who? But Christ who lives in me. The secret of, of victorious Christian living is the Holy Spirit as the agent of Christ's power in our life. The word through was found all throughout Scripture, and especially here where it says that, you know what, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of life is what? It's is found through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to allow God's Spirit, His indwelling Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, to live His life through us. Through us. You say, well, well how do you apply that? Well, you apply that when somebody says, how was your weekend? Instead of going in your own strength trying to answer, you say, Lord, I can't do this. But you can through me the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to be bold and to share with, with, with this person what's going on in my life. I can't do it. I'm afraid of what they'll think. I'm afraid of what they'll say. I'm afraid they may call me a Jesus freak. I'm afraid they'll think I slipped off the edge of the earth, that my wagon flipped over. I'm three bricks shy of a load. I'm afraid of all these things, man. It's like, but, but Lord, you know what? But you can. You can talk to them through me. Let me get out of the way, so to speak. And that's the battle, the struggle that takes place in all of our hearts as believers. You know, the law in trying to keep it couldn't save us, couldn't lift us up. It was impossible. Why? Because the flesh was weak. Let me give you an illustration, or an illustration. I don't know if it's good or not. But um, um, several years ago, Christmas Eve, we thought we would, we would cook um, prime rib. So we're cooking prime rib. And, um, and it was time to take it out of the oven. And uh, so I went to get it, and I stuck a couple forks, one in one side and one in the other side. And when I tried to lift it up, it was too heavy. And, and, the, and the flesh kind of ripped, and it just dropped, right? And I tried to do it again, and it couldn't do it, and it kept dropping, and it kept falling. I'm like, man, you know what? I can't lift this up. I said, well, then what we had to do is we got something to put underneath it, and we lifted it up that way. And we were able to lift it up, and we were able to move it. And you know, isn't it amazing how God brings certain things back to your remembrance? I'm reading this passage, and it's saying what the, what the law was unable to do because the flesh is weak, God did through his son. See, you know, it's like sticking the forks in, trying to live a good life, right? And every time we try it, it would drop and it would fall. And it just, it would happen. Why? Because the flesh was weak, but the spirit was willing, the flesh is weak, right? But then when Jesus came, he lifted us up. Just as he was lifted up on the cross so that all who would look upon him would be saved, he then took all of us who have trusted in him, and he lifts us up. And how does he do it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. Why? Because our flesh is weak. We can't live a Christian life. It's impossible to live the Christian life. There's none of us that can do that. 
And as we look at this, we find that, you know, we have also freedom from defeat. Think about this. This whole next, next section has to do with verses 5 through 17, has to do with the battle between the flesh and the spirit. It says in Romans 8, look at verse, um, verse 5. He goes on and says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. What he does here is lay out a contrast between believers and non-believers. There's, there's a flesh and there's a spirit. There's death, there's life. There's war with God, there's peace with God. There's pleasing ourselves or there's pleasing God. That's the only way that we can know for sure that we've come to faith in Christ is the evidence that's in our life. The mindset on the flesh is death. It says the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it doesn't subject itself to the law of God because it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, believers, cannot please God. You notice that? Unbelievers, I mean, cannot please God. There's nothing a non-believer can do that will ever please God. The only thing that God is pleased and well pleased in is Jesus Christ and in Him crucified. That's it. There's nothing anyone can do. It says, however, speaking to us as believers, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. All of this is to say very simply this, that if a person is truly in Christ, there is no condemnation and there should be no defeat. And the reason for it is this, because the Holy Spirit of God indwells every believer and is given to us at the moment we confess Christ as our Savior and the power of the Spirit of God gives us the enablement and the empowerment to live a life that's pleasing to God. Our life should be drastically different than it was before we came to faith in Christ. It frightens me and it concerns me when I hear people say or claim to be Christians and there is nothing different about their life than it was supposedly before they came to faith in Christ. There has got to be a life-changing experience. There has got to be a difference. Read Ephesians 4 and Galatians chapter 5. There was an old way that all non-believers live and there is a new way that all believers should live. And it is outlined very clearly. There's got to be evidence of it. He says, So then, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're no longer under obligation to live according to the flesh, but you and I are under obligation to live according to the Spirit of God in our life. He will lead us. He will guide us. He will direct us. He, He will tell us the direction that God wants us to go. He will reveal God's truth to us in our heart. He will tell us what is right. He will tell us what is wrong. He will teach us those things. He will remind us of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. He will judge the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of God living in every believer is is the sufficiency of our strength to do what God wants us to do now as His children. He goes on and says, you're being led by the Spirit of God, those who are sons of God. If God is leading you in your life, it is an evidence of the fact that what God says is true, that you've come to faith in Christ. See, if you're being led by Him, you've not received the spirit of slavery, leaving to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Let me just wrap all this up with, with a couple of things. As I thought about this whole idea of being free from condemnation and free from defeat in our daily life, what it comes back to is this. You realize as Christians there are great assurances in the Bible of our relationship with God. Great assurances. First assurance, an absolute assurance is this. It is built on the promises of God's Word. Anytime that you and I doubt because we failed God of whether or not we're really children of God, the Bible says we need to go back to the very promises of God. 
he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And the witness is this. Memorize 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And the testimony of God is this. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son, he who is in Christ Jesus, has eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. He says, in these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Without any question, without any doubting, the assurance of God's word. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sin? The Bible says that you may know and I may know that we're children of God to those who believe in His name. The first great assurance is the promises of God. God is not like man. He's not lying to us. He's not blowing smoke at us. Whatever he says, he's held accountable to. He cannot tell us anything that's not true because in him there is no darkness at all. If God said it, we got to believe it in our heart. We know it in our head, we believe it in our heart, and we reckon it to be true in our life. That if we have the Son, we have life. And if we have the Son, guess what? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the promise of God. The second assurance that we have is the fruit of our life. The evidence of our life that we're no longer like we used to be, that we've become a new creature, that things are different in our life, and we're starting to live that out. The evidence of knowing Christ is there's got to be life change. There's got to be what the Bible says, fruit in our life. There's evidence of change. We're now living in a way that's pleasing to God. We, we have the Spirit of God living within us. We've been given eternal life that takes place the moment we trust in Christ, the quality of life. We have peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. We want to do what's right before God. We want to please God. We live to please God. Before we live to please ourselves, now we live to please God. What took place? Well, I'll tell you what took place. We came to faith in Christ. The Spirit of God indwells us, and it's God's Spirit who wants to live a life that's pleasing to God through us. And so that's how it all happens. But the third and most wonderful evidence of assurance that we have that we've become a child of God is this. Verse 16, and don't ever forget this, that God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see that? God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. You know, when I was, quote, religious, which this meant I went to church once a week and didn't pay attention when I was there. But in those days, I can remember thinking, how am I going to live to please God, you know, because after all, you've got to cover all your bases. And I used to have people on the outside of me tell me, well, if you do this, 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 and this, then you'll be pleasing to God. And I'd try to do those things, and I'd fail miserably, but I'd keep on trying because that's what I was told you had to do to please God. But what's fascinating about it is when I would lay in bed at night, or when nobody else would be around me, you know what? I had no assurance that I was right with God. I would lay in bed and think, man, you know what? I have a friend who died. I think, I don't want to die. Because I don't know what's going to happen to me if I die. I have no confidence in my relationship with God. I have no confidence that this list of things people gave me is really true and it's really going to hold up. Plus, even if it is true, I never, I never did it very well anyway. I had no assurance. I can have all the people in the world tell me from the outside, hey, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, you're all right with God. But you know what? In my heart, I knew I wasn't. And there was a concern. But you know what's a wonderful truth? When you recognize you're a sinner and you come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior... The Bible says the Holy Spirit of God indwells us at that moment in time, that precise moment in time where we give our heart to the Lord. And you know what the Bible says? That we can, we can rely on the promises that God makes in His Word. That we can rely upon the subjective evidence of fruit in our life or a life-changing experience that has taken place. But you know what else is a wonderful truth? 
that God's Spirit, living within us, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Isn't that wonderful truth? That when you lay down at night, nobody else is around, that God's Spirit can testify with your spirit. Says, you know what, Chuck? Everything's going to be okay. And I see that. I see people in hospital rooms. I see people who are dying. I see people with peace because they're at peace with God. And the Spirit of God bears witness with their spirit. You know what? Don't worry. Absent from the body, you'll be present with the Lord. Don't worry. Because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. Don't worry. You don't have anything to worry about. Because God is with you. Who can be against you? You don't have anything to worry about. You're at peace with God. And it's not because you did anything to deserve it. It's because Jesus Christ took your place on the cross that God will never hold you accountable again. Do you realize what wonderful assurances that we have? And the Bible also says we're to examine ourselves to make sure that these statements are true of our life. Do you believe the promises of God that are found in His Word? Do you believe what He says, that you're a sinner separated from God and you're in need of salvation, you're in need of a Savior? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father? He's the only way you'll find forgiveness. Have you recognized it and have you responded with faith to the finished work of Christ? And if you have, is there evidence of that in your life? You're not the same as you used to be. Old things pass away, all things become new. Man, there's stuff going on in your life. You don't even understand all of it, but you can just tell you're different. And the greatest assurance in your heart is that, you know what? When everything else doubts you, when you doubt yourself and then you fail God miserably, and we all are going to, is the assurance that God gives us in the presence of His Holy Spirit in our life who says, you know what, Chuck? Don't worry. Because even though you've screwed up, you're still a child of God. Because God is faithful when we're faithless. His word is true. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. You can believe Him. The evidence is there. Look at, look at what God's done in your life. That He who began a good work in you will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You're not perfect. You never will be. But you know what? God's moving you in that direction. And it doesn't matter because you were justified in a moment of time. And now you're sanctified throughout your lifetime. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. So don't let that daily stumble, that daily struggle hold you back. Because God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And you know what His Spirit says? Abba, Father, Daddy. I can go to, I can go to God as my Daddy. I'll tell you what, there is no sweeter expression that's found than I, than I know of with friends who come from the South that know what it means to call their father Daddy. To have that kind of intimacy that you can go to God when you screw up and say, Dad, you know what? I, I, I did it again. The Spirit was willing, but my flesh was weak. And I just thank you for the promises that you make. If I confess my sin, you'll cleanse me from it. You'll free me from it. And you'll deliver me from it. That you'll erase it from my life. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, you know what, when I come to know him and the power of his resurrection, at the end of all of it, I can say this, I'm going to forget what's behind me. I'm not looking back. I heard a guy say this once, and I really like it. He says, why are you looking back? The only people that look back are the ones who intend to go that direction. Isn't that true? The only reason we're looking in the rearview mirror is because we're intended to back up. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that we don't need to look behind us. When we doubt, look behind us to the day that we came to faith in Christ and we see that cross driven in the ground on our behalf. But other than that, don't, don't go backwards. We forget everything. Forget it and drive on. I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How about you? That's the secret of no condemnation and no defeat in the Christian life. Father, thank you for your word, for your promises, and most importantly, thank you for the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. For those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have given us your spirit as a down payment of things to come. 
God, we look forward to that as we look at the rest of Romans chapter 8, where we learn that there is freedom from discouragement and there's also freedom from separation. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.